I think our listeners are going to be uh, very excited about our interview on Thursday. Yeah, I mean, I'm excited about it. I am really interested in in learning all of the things that we're going to learn from that person who is not going to be named because <laughs> I might use this in the intro. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, it's going to be good. But, oh, I also, I ordered another book about the yeah. ILA. So I, even though none of these books has been exactly as good as the, the David Whitwer book that was mostly what I based the Hoffa series on, I am going to make this fucking ILA series <laughs> if it takes me all damn year. <laughs> hey, I, uh, that's, uh, the little clips that you've sent me from the different books have been uh, enlightening, but I do imagine compared to the number of uh, book photos that you sent while researching Hoffa, it is harder to find that, that really essential information. Yeah. Because it's part of it is that like the characters involved, none of them are quite the uh, larger than life figure of Jimmy Hoffa. It's, it's all these like, it's people like, you know, the former president Ryan, who was named president for life. (laughs) And given a ten thousand dollar pension while he was still in the union, like every every year while he was still in the union. I don't know how pensions oh, work. It does when you're the boss of the ILA and you're working with a mob all the time. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yeah, well, it's that'll be uh, interesting. It's wild when it comes out in a uh, between one and fifteen months from now. That's and- right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, eventually. But before that, <laughs> we should probably get into the stuff that happened this week. That's right. everybody your favorite labor podcast my name is john i'm dan and i'm lena and we are an entirely listener supported show so thank you so much if you support us on patreon it's a great way to hear all of our it's the only way to hear all of our bonus content uh including interviews uh retrospectives histories and movie times and shop floor discussion wow we have a lot of content so get over there get in the discord if you're not in there already it's another great place to find cool stuff if you are a patron and you don't have stickers yet go ahead and message us on patreon and we'll get them to you asap and if you want to help the show a little bit more leave us a five star review wherever you think it will help maybe uh, a five-star review of the film hoffa on letterboxd <laughs> you could yeah. mention us uh you could you could leave little notes inside your smoke detector so that the next renter comes in and sees them when they try to change the battery yeah <laughs> i can't wait to see the work stoppage stickers in the facebook group interesting things found in walls <laughs> <laughs> that's right but uh, to start off this week, we've got a uh, quick check-in because, of course, as is tradition on this program, when we cover a hot story immediately after we publish the episode, there's usually a major development undercutting everything we talked about on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, so we talked last week about the possibility for a tentative agreement in the strike going on by grad student workers at Temple University. And... Basically, right after we put out the episode, 
the tentative agreement was voted on, and the union announced that the workers had overwhelmingly rejected the tentative agreement with 92% of the membership voting against it. Uh, so <laughs> pretty much a landslide vote there to continue the strike, which uh, when we look at the details of what was in the tentative agreement, because that was one of the big things we talked about last week, we're like, you know, there's not a lot of info about this, so we, it's hard for us to really judge it. And now that we have more information, it, I think it became a lot clearer why the vote was so one-sided. Mm -hmm. Because uh, just for folks, you know, if, if you haven't listened to the previous episodes, we talked about Temple. These workers who are members of members of Tugsa, which is the name of their uh, their union, they are only paid about twenty thousand dollars a year which is nothing. That's not enough money to pay anyone in this country, no matter where you are. And it's not even enough to pay rent in Philly. So they are striking to try and get just a livable wage. And Temple's offer for that in this contract was a raise to $24,000 in 2026. <sighs> wow, it gets insulting. worse the more you go on. Yeah, it's, it's an outright slap in the face. And... Uh, um, the other big thing that the workers have been asking for this whole time is it's like, they're like, okay, we have healthcare. We, it could be better, but we have healthcare, but we're grad students and we have dependents because many, many grad students have families. It's a completely usual and normal thing. Mm -hmm. And their dependents are human beings and therefore also need health care. But until now, Temple has not offered dependent health care. And in their new contract proposal, they didn't even bother to mention it. <laughs> There's no addition of dependent health care whatsoever. And they trumpeted it as we are preserving the excellent health care that we currently offer. That's, right. that's not at all what they asked for. <laughs> no. Well, and it, it doesn't seem like Tugsa's bargaining committee was at all confident that this was going to go through in any way because they explained that the only reason they even brought the offer to a vote was the arguably illegal refusal of the university to continue bargaining unless the entire membership got a chance to vote on this offer, their, <laughs> their best offer that they're going to offer, which is just like, what a high level of dishonesty to be like, all right, uh, you have to go through your entire you know voting process or we're going to consider that you're not in good faith. Meanwhile, when the university is not in good faith at any step along the way, the union has like little to no recourse. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that another thing that they were really hoping for is that because there was a quote unquote tentative agreement that the university would do what some other unions do, which is end the vote or end the, end the strike and then go to the vote and all that. Mm -hmm. So they were really counting on that kind of, uh, you know, history of anti-democratic practices that, you know, is in some unions being re uh, re fixed and including, you know, that didn't happen here in, in Tugsa where they didn't call off the strike. But if they had, I think there would have been a lot more pressure on mm -hmm. the workers to actually vote for it which I think shows the real power in actually not ending strikes and sticking to the democratic process. Yeah, 100%. No, I think, like, Tugsa's bargaining committee, I think, is handling this great. Like, they... And, <laughs> of course, in response, Temple has just returned to their regularly scheduled program of lying constantly about the union to try and cover for themselves. They put out a statement after the workers 
again, nearly unanimously rejected their offer, Mm -hmm. deploring that basically, essentially implying that they had been uh, betrayed by the bargaining (laughs) committee. And they said in their statement that the bargaining committee agreed, quote, to unanimously recommend the agreement for ratification, end quote. (laughs) That's Uh, so funny because we heard from the bargaining committee. They didn't say shit about that. (laughs) Yeah, they immediately responded. They're like, we never said that. That's not true. Uh, They're like, we said we would take it to the membership for Mm -hmm. a vote because the university refused to continue negotiating. We never said we would recommend it, which makes sense because like, again, the university like said, you have to take it to the vote. So they did. They, they never Mm -hmm. said they would say you should vote for this shitty deal. And if they did say that, you know, I, there would be good reason for the rank and file to be like, we need a new bargaining committee. So it does kind of rock that the university really thought that they were going to get something out of this tactic. And at <laughs> yeah. every step along the way, the union gave them just as little as possible, basically next to nothing. All they got out of it was stalling, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. And as you said, Lena, it's like, this is exactly why it's so important that we treat the like voting on a tentative agreement as democratically as, as to the folks in Tuxa did. Because as you exactly as you said, if they just paused the strike or whatever maybe it wouldn't have been 92 percent maybe they still would have lost but what if the vote was 60 40 and now you've paused the strike for three days and all that momentum is gone and you have to Mm -hmm. suddenly spin that back up like that can really hurt your your strike movement and so i think yeah i think they've they've done this really well and and so and following the announcement that you know they rejected the ta uh, last Thursday on February 23rd, hundreds of students and faculty rallied alongside Tugsa workers to show solidarity and demonstrate really that like not only are the workers in Tugsa not going to back down, but that the students and faculty at Temple University are behind them and will stick with them no matter how long the strike takes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, as long as we're talking about... <laughs> I don't have a great transition for this. It's the NLRB, folks. (laughs) It's our favorite government agency to comment on. uh, And they've been doing a lot more shit than you might expect from them, which is kind of interesting, considering that the powers that they have are structurally designed to be absolutely limited and not really very far reaching. But this week, Tuesday, February 23rd, the board did rule that companies are legally barred from demanding workers sign non-disparagement agreements as part of severance. Previously, companies have forced workers to sign agreements that they would not say anything bad about the company or disclose the terms of their agreement in order to get their duly owed severance benefits after being fired. And in a shocking surprise, oh my God, that's the NLRB's music. They're like, actually, <laughs> you can't do that anymore. <laughs> well, it sounds really illegal. It's like literally an infringement on your right to comment on work conditions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's one of the things that I never understood stood about non-disparagement agreements is is i was just like doesn't this violate like protected concerted activities stuff from the nlra because like it, it's in the same way that um we talked about a case like this with apple uh where the, in their employee manual they had a policy mm-hmm. that said you're not allowed to talk about the terms of your employment contract with other workers and, and so one of those things the nlrb was like you can't just you can't just write illegal restrict like <laughs> requirements into yeah. your employee manual and say they're legal because you put them in the employee manual they're like that's not how that that works yeah 
I also, I'm not a contract uh, lawyer, but <laughs> I'm yeah, pretty sure. I mean, I bet people were sued for this, but I don't know if this would work on me because I have I've talked shit on every company I've ever <laughs> left. So I, I did love one of the things, though, when I first saw this posted on Twitter, immediately, like almost all of the early responses were people being like, wait, is this retroactive? Like, <laughs> it's all these people who have been forced to sign these agreements. Like, can I talk shit on my company now? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I oh, bet because they would have to file new uh, new bits uh, about it, and those old contracts would have to be voided. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, and, and I mean, it's, I, this but it's is not those... legal advice. I just want to put this out there that this is not legal advice. But I mean, if I was taking risks, I would uh, take this risk. If I felt like gambling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and I mean, it's it's just, it's one of those things like, you know, like with these, the the trap clauses and, and, and I mean, getting it, this is in a similar vein to the fact that like the FTC recently, you know, we announced they, they're planning on eliminating non-compete agreements. Mm-hmm. Like that's all in, in, in the right direction. Uh, so, you know, none of these are revolutionary changes, but just chipping away at these infringements on workers' rights definitely helps because especially just because by by making it clear to workers that those restrictions are illegal, that in and of itself, like regardless of what the NLRB does for their regulation, because of course we know their enforcement power is extremely mm-hmm. limited. But just by making this well known and helping, you know, prompt unions to remind workers that they're not bound by this bullshit. That, I think, does a lot of good in and of itself because kind of like as we were talking about, like you were sort of alluding to, a lot of this shit probably wouldn't hold up in court anyway. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of what these companies have always been relying on with these sorts of provisions is just fear, is that like people won't look into it. They won't look up if it's like an enforceable thing. They're like, well, they said it and they said they'd sue me, so I better not do anything, which is a totally understandable response to have. I don't want to get sued by some giant corporation. But so I think like, even if we can just, you know, help explain to more workers that it's like, look, if your company asks you to sign something like this, when they fire you, you can tell them to fuck off (laughs) because it is extremely illegal. Like that in and of itself, I think is very helpful. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that they feel like they can lord your severance over Mm -hmm. you. Like they can try to take that away from you, which makes me wonder how often this ever had gone to court in the past maybe the the nlrb was like there are just so many of these fucking cases can we just make a blanket ruling please (laughs) we don't have any resources like (laughs) they should do that more often with more with you know anything that is we've complained about so many different aspects of like things that should be part of the you know enforcement of the nlra that are that have historically been, you know, chipped away at by more conservative versions of the board or even some liberal versions of the board. Uh, but like, I don't know, they, they really should be issuing these blanket statements a lot more. And I'm kind of glad that we've been seeing at least a little bit of that. Yeah. yeah. Hey, NLRB, why don't you read Mao Zedong's On Practice and get your <laughs> shit together? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, but yeah, I mean, speaking of one of the companies for which we need every single one of the sorts of protections we can get from, mm-hmm. 
We unfortunately have another story this week about giant food processing conglomerate, Rich Products. Ugh. Uh, we Just to remind folks, or for folks who didn't used to listen to our show, last year we discussed a strike uh, by workers at an ice cream cake manufacturing facility. And I apologize for California residents for getting this wrong, who I believe were in L.A. I'm not sure if it was a suburb of L.A., but in the L.A. area where these workers had been forced to strike for months just to get a $1 an hour raise. And like the, you know, the, the plant, which is owned by John Denaire, which is owned by Rich Products, just refused to accept the incredibly mild demand of the workers, forcing them to be out on the picket lines for weeks. And now, this week, there was a report from Workday Magazine by Sarah Lazar, who brought another awful story from giant corporation Rich Products. This time, though, uh, you know, arguably even worse because it involved a, a pretty awful injury by a worker. So I think that this was the episode that I wasn't on because uh, uh, I have been, I've only not been on like two or three episodes uh, throughout the history of this show, and I, this is the one where the cakes were melting while they were on strike, and then they used yeah. was it they used a fake. They like used astroturfed uh, like counter protests on the strike line. Is that the same thing or is that no? Different? That that was um, wasn't that uh? Sorry, this is this makes for great podcasting. Uh, that was Annie's, I think. Yeah. Oh yeah, damn. Yeah. And okay, I Y'all just there's so many of memories. these fucking uh like companies that really tout how cool their products are. They're great mm-hmm. for people, and then they're just pieces of shit companies. The rich product strike is the one where the the floor workers allied with the uh, sanitation staff. Hell yeah. So the sanitation staff walked out with them, and they kept having to scrap whole batches of cakes that the scabs were making because the stuff they were making them on wasn't cleaned. So it was all <laughs> unusable. Oh, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. That was like one of the big takeaways that we wanted to emphasize for people for that, which is that like, first off, like sanitation staff are incredibly vital workers and mm-hmm. pretty much no business could function without them. And second of all, you want them in your union yeah, <laughs> because well, they yeah. give you so much more leverage. It's just like solidarity isn't just like a fun and nice thing we do to feel good. It is also very effective. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And what? Rich products, if you work there, that's a place where you really need some solidarity Mm -hmm. because they do not give a shit about their workers. And case in point, one worker, Alicia, who I believe's name is anonymized for protection in the story, she's a worker at a rich products plant in Crest Hill, Illinois. And she was moved off of her normal machine operations station to a different one to help a coworker with a machine that they basically it takes flat cardboard and it forms it into boxes. Mm -hmm. And so she was helping a worker with it because the machine wasn't working right. And while she was attempting to help her coworker with the machine, her arm was pulled into it, causing severe lacerations. Uh, She then went to a nearby urgent care clinic for treatment Uh, At which point the company demanded that she take a drug test to attempt to foist the blame onto her in onto her for her injury. And folks will know this is unfortunately an extremely common practice where under the guise of, well, hey, look, 
we 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 need to get you treated but look if you were irresponsibly operating heavy machinery while high or whatever then it's mm-hmm. not our fault well i yeah. always have a few questions about the drug test situation it's like okay uh how about we get the manager who's in charge of making sure that the machine is in good operating condition to take the drug test why don't we drug test the machine See if it was high. Hmm? See how far this rabbit hole can go. Yeah. I mean, this is because in these cases, I think the burden of proof that the injury is the worker's fault is on Mm -hmm. the company. And so they're trying to force the worker to incriminate themselves by Mm -hmm. taking these drug tests. Right. And so Alicia intelligently refused to take the drug test. First of all, it's just an absolutely ridiculous a cruel thing to do. You have somebody whose arm is all fucked up because it got pulled into a machine and you're like, okay, yeah, we're going to get, you know, your arm all patched up so it's not like bleeding on the floor. But can you piss into this cup first to see if we have to pay for it? Like, right. come the fuck on. <laughs> so she refused and then she received treatment and the next day she was fired for refusing to take that drug test. Uh, and so this is not the first accident at the Crest Hill, Illinois plant, which I think is a very important context for this. Mm -hmm. Because first off, it would be bullshit if they asked her to take a drug test before the injury, regardless. But in addition, her injury, which again, the company is blaming on her. Like when they fired her, they had two reasons. One, they said she was being fired because she caused herself to get injured. They claim she climbed into the machine. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. Sure, that's a thing people do. No. (laughs) And two, that she refused to take the drug test. But this is also a company that routinely gets huge, unfortunately in relative terms, Mm -hmm. OSHA fines for constant safety violations at their facilities. There have been three other workers at this same plant who have been killed on the job in just the last six years. OSHA placed Rich Products on its, quote, severe violator enforcement program, end quote, after 42-year-old Adewale Ogunyemi was pulled into a machine and crushed while cleaning it last year. The company had not properly tagged out the equipment to prevent such an injury and was fined the grand total of $145,000, which... You know, we love these stories where the United States just shows you openly how low of a value they place on workers' lives. Um, and But that serves as what is considered to be severe treatment by OSHA mm-hmm. for a company that brought in $3.3 billion last year. Like... Yeah. I mean, it's just outrageous. They're, they have more money than God and they end up getting fined something that like, you know, uh, a lot of medium sized businesses could probably pay without wincing too much. And as you say, they're trying to claim that Alicia crawled into the machine, which is just absolutely absurd. And then we heard from Anastasia Christman with the National Employment Law Project, who called bullshit on the claims, saying, quote, I find it telling that Miss Conti talks about creating a, quote, culture of safety, which points the finger at behaviors, making the workers the ones who are being held accountable for safety, not the employer, as it is written in law. The fact is, if there is not a hazard, people don't get hurt. The allegations against this worker are trying to avoid the fact that there is not a sufficient safety guard on this machine to keep someone's arm from going into it totally agree and i Uh would add 
it was known to be malfunctioning. If mm-hmm. you have a worker work on a malfunctioning machine, you're responsible. Mm-hmm. Period. Yeah. And I'm really glad that she said that line. If there is not a hazard, people don't get hurt. Because that's a really, really important thing. And every company is trying to convince you that's not true. Every single company wants you to think that they set out the the safest machine in the world and the workers went in there and they dismantled all of the safety precautions (laughs) and threw themselves into the machine, which is, it's bullshit. I also love that turn of phrase, you know, uh, if, if there's, what, what is it exactly? If there is not a hazard, people don't get hurt because it's not like, I know on this show we're, we're Marxists. We're not afraid to throw out some Marxist terminology here and there, but it's nice to hear this kind of stuff spoken in, in, in a way that like I could hear my grandma saying as she Mm -hmm. puts plastic bumpers on the corners of her coffee table. So her grandkids don't hit their heads on it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and and like everything about this incident shows them trying to foist blame onto Alicia, mm-hmm. and unfortunately, again, this is extremely common. Uh, the AFL put out a national survey in 2009 that 70 percent of workers uh, were forced to take a drug test after a workplace injury, and that that had a direct chilling effect on workers reporting an injury, mm-hmm. which is exactly the purpose of that policy. Because again, ultimately the goal is to intimidate you because it is to tell you, Hey, if you pop on that drug test, you could lose your job and not get compensated. So you better decide whether reporting that injury is really worth it. Maybe, you know, yeah, maybe it sucks if you have to pay for it, but if you report it and you smoked weed last weekend mm-hmm. and you pop that drug test and you get fired, Now you're fucked. And so that means a lot of people are getting injured at work and not reporting it because they're terrified of losing their job. Well, and something that companies will do on top of that is then they'll have a policy within the company that if you get injured, every injury, no matter how slight, must be reported. So if you decide like, oh, I don't want to risk all my shit just because I like hurt my finger really bad or something. And then it comes up later as something that was a contributing factor to maybe your health declining or another incident. They can claim that because you didn't report that now you're responsible for everything that fell out of that, despite the fact that their own policies are contradictory with them themselves and the law Mm -hmm. right and i think that your point about the testing positive for smoking weed is a really important one especially in a state like illinois where it is actually legal to actually consume marijuana as an adult and uh how these tests are not only based on what happened up to a month ago sometimes Mm -hmm. even more for some people uh like that could have absolutely nothing to do with your ability to do your job. Like even if you like smoked weed the night before, you come in the next day, you're sober. Like that's how it works. And so the fact that these tests could cause people to lose their jobs, despite the fact that they are not definitively proving that someone was actually on drugs while while they got injured just shows that these tests are wholly in like insufficient at actually even meeting these goals which makes you question the goals themselves and then you look at what their actual goals are and it's to avoid accountability at any Mm -hmm. cost yeah i mean the purpose of a system is what it does and uh, nine times out of nine it's not the (laughs) stated goal (laughs) yeah and 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 this is just one of those things where i i think ultimately like like Obviously, one of the takeaways is fuck rich products. All my homies hate rich products. True. Terrible company. Uh, True. But 
That's true. Absolutely. But it is also very revealing of a broader pattern throughout the U.S. economy. And I think it really all ties back into the really good conversation we had with Nate Holdren last year about his book, Injury Impoverished, and the history of workers' comp, where the history of workplace injury is the history of companies using the state to avoid responsibility for it. Exactly what you were talking about, Lena. And like, while, you know, of course, we advocate for higher fines, we advocate for more protections, but like, until we get rid of capitalism and get rid of the fact that the fundamental driving force in our society is the profit motive and nothing else, mm-hmm. until we change that, we can make all the reforms we want, and these companies are still going to keep breaking the law and uh, changing it like themselves. So the whole system has to go if we ever really want to solve this stuff. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. There shouldn't even be able to be a rich products. There should only be inexpensive, durable, long-lasting products. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Equalized yeah. income products. That's right. <laughs> well, in our next story, we get to uh, cover that in Ohio, it's not only trains metal f- and metal factories that are causing disasters, but also restaurants uh, because in uh, Wauseon, uh, I, I, I Ohio's all fucked up. Say it any way you want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this is in Northwest Ohio. There's a Mexican restaurant called Los Mariachis that uh, is our latest example of extreme wage theft in the United States. And we've talked about wage theft plenty of times, but this case is particularly egregious. So, at this restaurant, in a scheme to mask the crimes that were being done by the owner of Los Mariachis, or uh, they ordered the servers to pay back to them their entire paychecks after cashing it, except for $10 per week. And at the same time, the cooks were salaried, quote-unquote, to just dis- just stop them from receiving any sort of overtime pay. So... This left both, or this left the servers with only tips because the, I guess they didn't claim tips or something like that, which, you know, I don't care if you claim your tips. That's not really a big deal to me, but we'll talk about why that matters just a little bit more in the, once we get to, into the story. But all of these workers, I mean, or at least these workers in general, on average, worked 60 hours per week. So these cooks who are being denied overtime pay are certainly supposed to be receiving these receiving overtime pay these uh service the the servers are also working around the same time in fact there are six servers and 12 cooks who were affected by this one of the 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 fucking media running cover for this uh was it was like uh what a quote here is by providing servers with paychecks and ordering them to cash them and pay them pay most of the money back the restaurant may have been attempting to disguise wrongdoing and i'm just like <laughs> what do you mean may have like this i is mean a- the whole th- go yeah, ahead the, the, the whole thing is a fucking mind bender Paying back your paycheck in what fucking unit? That's not even wage theft anymore. That is just regular theft. <laughs> yeah. That's just robbery. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm like, I think, isn't, isn't that just like larceny? <laughs> like, it should yeah. be. <laughs> yeah, like, the thing is, though, the more I've thought about this story, the more I've realized that I'm just like, this is how, ev- at least in my experience, which is granted not the broadest, 
But in my observations, this is how every restaurant owner mm-hmm. thinks they should be able to run their restaurant, like legally. Yeah. Absolutely. Like that, that their workers should only be paid in tips, like nothing, that they should not receive any salary because their salary is being thankful to the business owner for granting them the opportunity to make money on tips by working mm-hmm. there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and in a, kind of in a... a, a double blow to these workers after be, be putting up with all of this bullshit the department of labor has ordered los mariachis to pay $245,509 back to the workers now this may sound like you know a number that could be reasonable under certain circumstances uh, but I did a little bit of kind of number crunching, and though these are kind of rough numbers, and you're gonna have to take it with kind of a grain of salt, this averages out to about thirteen thousand six hundred and thirty-nine dollars per worker. Now I broke it down just a little bit more. That uh, the articles I looked for a couple more, and they're all just based on this Department of Labor uh, thing, and any article with more words than that is just putting flowery language in there. Uh, there is a there is no description for how long this was going on, but I have to assume that this number, like I said, is kind of low because spread over one year, assuming this was only happening for one year, exactly fifty two weeks, that is six hundred or I mean two hundred and sixty two dollars and thirty cents a week, and at a minimum wage of seven twenty five, which is what the Department of Labor would be considering this at, because Ohio's minimum wage is the same as the federal minimum wage. That would take it would take about thirty six hours to a week to make this much money. These workers are like I guess maybe that is close to the and this is assuming I'm correct with the one year. This is one hundred percent assuming that the one year uh, like approximation is correct. That the overtime pay for these cooks and like part of the pay for these servers is made up for. And this matters because even though there is a tipped minimum wage, the way that the tip minimum wage works is that if the if the tips don't amount to the total of the minimum wage of 725, the restaurant is required to make up that difference between the I think it's like 215 or something like that and the 725. So this matters because the owner didn't keep accurate time and payroll records, which means that they could what all be wrong. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Which means that you basically have to throw out all of the time and payroll records, assume the average, which is the 60 hours per week, and do the, equa- do the equations based on that. And I think, you know, I see all this math a- I'm doing? This, yeah. All this crazy math I'm doing just to figure out, like, the and hold on one last detail before you make your comment, John. Hmm. So this restaurant has been open since at least August of 2009, uh, and I only know this because I went on to their Yelp, and that is the oldest <laughs> review of this particular uh, like restaurant in this area. Damn, and this so, is like way more in-depth research than I usually do for notes. <laughs> I was mad. I was really mad. I was like, this is such a tiny number. Like, did they, And there was no mention of like a recent rate, wage reform system where they're like, oh, we kind of put together a new wage system, uh, even at the, like, the beginning of the pandemic or the reopening or whatever, and then they, when they brought people back on. Even then, that would have been more than a year ago mm-hmm. because we know that the restaurants were barely closed if you know at all in some places 
So I'm calling bullshit on this fucking $245,000 number because it should be way more than that, as far as I can tell just from these basic equations. But again, this could also be me just being kind of mad at how low the fucking minimum wage is. I mean, it could be both things. It, it, it could be both things at the same time. I think it probably is. And also, like, the fact that we have to rely on uh, payroll and schedule numbers that were prepared by a business owner in the first place is fucking nuts. The fact that business owners are allowed to do their own payroll and taxes is insane. The IRS should do business as taxes for them, and there should be a, a payroll department, a federal bureau of payroll or something. <laughs> Because they a cheat people of all the time. And, and prices. Perhaps. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> yeah. Weights and measures. Maybe you could get a. You, it could be part of your deal. I don't know. <laughs> Check out the 2020 publication Socialist Reconstruction for some ideas on how this could be done in an alternative manner. Uh, <laughs> no, but this is one of those cases where you know we joke a lot of times on the show that I, I, I guess I should put joke in quotes, but <laughs> about you know these clear criminal cases because that's the other thing that I think is just, again, so stand out about these things. You constantly hear our fascist politicians from both parties talking about how much they care about law and order. And yet, I know this is a cliche. You've all heard it. You know, they, but like, it's never about the lawbreakers who are business owners. It's never about wage theft. It's only about the sorts of things that they can use to divide workers against each other in a racist manner to use mass incarceration to fuck over mostly black people. Well, you got to understand, Dan, look, when you or I break the law, that falls under the jurisdiction of law. But when a business owner, someone who is nominally, at least in the bourgeoisie, breaks the law, that falls under the dominion of order. <laughs> yeah no but 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 so like like i was saying like we've joked on the past about you know when there's these cases where clearly the owner of this is liable for about at least half a dozen crimes that they should just clearly they should just turn the business over to the workers but frankly this is one of those cases where i'm like i i think you could easily make that pitch to even a liberal like to be like mm -hmm. look at what this guy did <laughs> like he stole all of these workers wages essentially turned them into indentured servants mm -hmm. for this entire purpose and then didn't do any of his own paperwork right so we we don't actually know shockingly how much money you should pay the workers back so my recommendation would be either pay $245,000 to each employee not total mm -hmm. and or really and just turn over the ownership of the business to the workers and make it a worker co-op, and I bet you'll end up with way better food, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I can imagine the liberal asking you, like, well, shouldn't we just make that illegal? And you are, you're like, well, it, it is illegal already, actually. It's just <laughs> totally unenforced. And, they're, yeah. and, and you're like, well, maybe we should make it structurally impossible to do. And the liberal's just like, I don't know. That sounds really, really... <laughs> It just sounds like so, a lot. <laughs> while we're talking about liberals in regards to this story, so I was doing some extra research, and there was a local news story where they oh did boy. an interview. And uh, the interview was not with a worker, not with one of the managers, not with the owner, but with some white lady who was a <laughs> normal customer who was very disappointed. Why would you interview the customer? <laughs> you know what they say about the customer? They're always a piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> That's just such a weird thing to do. Like, 
whatever a commentary on it it's something that the news always does because if you interview people who are operating as consumers they tend to side more with business owners whereas if you showed up at their jobs and interviewed them when they were at work i bet you would get different results <laughs> yeah no i mean it's it's like when you ask people if they support welfare or if they support benefits for the poor yeah you get like a 40 percent swing in difference on those two things but Anyways, fuck small business tyrants. Make all restaurants into co-ops. We got another story to cover. Uh, This time we are going to the furthest flung state, which, by the way, should be given back to the native Hawaiian people. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're going to be talking about Hawaii. Specifically, workers who have been on strike there actually for a while. I got to say, I've been wanting to put this story on the notes for a long time, and I kept forgetting, so my bad. Uh, But so this is actually kind of a little bit of a follow-up to a story we covered last year where workers with the National Union of Healthcare Workers, the NUHW, who were – they were on strike for a while against Kaiser Permanente. This is uh, mental health care workers in California. They went on strike because Kaiser Permanente was refusing to meet its legal obligations in the state of California to provide sufficient staffing to handle emergency uh, mental health care for people. They've just refused to do that, and they're like, whatever, we'll pay the fine because it's cheaper to pay the fine than it is to hire the right number of people. And so the workers struck there for, I think, a couple of months. I think it actually became, at the time, the longest mental health care strike in the country. And the reason there's all this preface for that is that that record didn't last very long because (laughs) their fellow workers in the same union, but in a different state, this time Hawaii, went on strike just a bit after they did and ended up being out there for six months. And that now is the longest mental health care worker strike in the country's history. And this is actually coming off of the workers' first contract because they'd been working without one since they unionized back in 2018. And and the issues that they were fighting for in Hawaii are pretty much the same ones that we saw their union brothers and sisters fighting against, again, the same company, Kaiser Permanente. We love our monopolies in this country uh, for basically the same thing, that Kaiser just refuses adamantly to hire sufficient people. They come out there and they say, well, you know, we tried. And by we tried, we mean we listed it on Indeed with a completely way too low salary. So, hey, that counts. But... Again, it's because they have no intention of paying the labor costs to actually meet the needs of the people that actually need this mental health care. And so, but the strike just recently ended, and so we want to go over some of the things that the workers won. The raises in the deal are relatively small, but that was really not the primary thing these workers were fighting for. They're they're getting about 3% per year. It likely will not keep up with the current level of inflation by the end of the deal, unfortunately, even if inflation returns to its quote-unquote normal level of like about 1.5 to 2.5% per year. But but in a really big win uh, that I really don't think was emphasized enough in some of the coverage I saw on this, they managed to... Uh, keep their pension plan, which Kaiser had been trying really hard to get rid of. And 
they specifically cited the fact not only that a a pension is your only real form of retirement benefit, mm-hmm. unlike a four hundred one k, which is a scam, uh, but the fact that they're like, okay, Kaiser, you keep saying you agree with us that we need more workers and that you want to do something about the understaffing, and yet at the same time you are trying to take away our pension, which is one of the biggest draws for any potential new hire. So that that attempt really undermined what Kaiser's been saying about the fact that they oh that they they care about the understaffing and they want to address it, but they just keep when they actually do their, you know, actions instead mm-hmm. of their meaningless PR bullshit, they continue to cut into that. And specifically the, the Hawaii workers have said in their statement that they hope that by preserving these pension benefits, it will be easier to attract new hires because unfortunately they, despite the six month strike, they were unable to force Uh, Kaiser to accept several of the union's other proposals, which would have helped increase staffing and provide better patient care, such as increased hiring bonuses and a written commitment to hire more therapists because the company has claimed, oh, no, we are going to double our workforce in Hawaii by 2025. We're going to hire 10 new therapists every year. And in the first year of that plan, you want to know how many therapists they hired? Negative 10. Wow. I was going to say zero. (laughs) And then I was like, maybe I'm being too nice. (laughs) (sighs) Yeah. Instead, they lost 10 therapists, which only made the unmanageable caseloads that these workers have already been dealing with even worse. Damn. So uh, we have a statement from Rachel Kaya, who's a psychologist at Kaiser, who said in a statement, quote, I'm excited to return to work and treat my patients, but I'm disappointed that Kaiser still devalues mental health care and treats its patients in Hawaii as second class. I'm so grateful for our community that has supported our strike and kept us going all these months by contributing to our strike fund. Our strike is over, but our fight to make Kaiser deliver timely, accessible mental health care for the people of Hawaii is only just beginning, end quote. And getting to that unmanageable caseload, because she mentioned in this, this is a, pretty much all coming from an article in the Honolulu Star Advisor. She mentioned that she was expected to handle 150 patients a week, which when you average that out to a normal five-day work week, uh, that would require her to give each one of those patients an average of 16 minutes of healthcare a week. Uh, That's ridiculous. If she actually managed to fit them all in. The famous Lacanian short session. I'm just <laughs> kidding. That is not what that is. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, cl- I mean, I have a therapist, and uh, it's like minimum 45 minutes. Yeah, yeah. Like, there's. What are you supposed to talk about in in 15 minutes? You're gonna spend. You're gonna make yourself more anxious watching the 16 minute timer than you are gonna clear up anything in that time. Um, and and so. That essentially, functionally, means that these workers, because again, they're su- you're supposed to be giving each one of these patients an hour of time, not 16 minutes. And so really what this is demonstrating is that Kaiser workers in Hawaii are being asked to do the work of four people by themselves. And that's fundamentally what this whole problem is, is about. And <laughs> what made this worse is that workers in Hawaii are actually paid less than their counterparts in Northern California, despite the fact that there's a higher cost of living because it's Hawaii. Yeah, I was going to say, isn't Hawaii like famously extremely expensive to live in? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think it's like, I think it is the most expensive place other than perhaps New York city, like a, other than maybe a couple of cities. Yeah. I believe it is the most, but expensive it, it also gets you in different ways. Like it's structured differently. Like when all, all of your, when most of your groceries are like flown in or brought mm-hmm. in by boat, like fresh produce is really expensive compared to other places. If it's similar to Alaska, I remember seeing broccoli in an, a picture of broccoli in an Alaskan supermarket for like $22 or something <laughs> like that. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's wild. So, but in a statement, Andrea Kumura, who's a social worker and member of the the NUHW bargaining committee, said, quote, this contract is a lot better than what Kaiser was offering when we started our strike last August, but it's still not enough to address the understaffing crisis that forces Kaiser members to wait months for mental health therapy. I'm proud that we took a stand for patients, and I'm ready to keep fighting to make Kaiser deliver mental health care that meets the needs of its members, end quote. And to her point, I mean, I, I, you know, I, not to be the, the broken record cliche Marxist, but like healthcare and the profit motive are, are incompatible. Like that's, that, that is the, the root of this issue. Go Kaiser off, continues to break the law in any state that has a requirement for safe staffing, be, knowing that they are breaking the law because it is cheaper for them to do so. And it's going to remain that way as long as we let for-profit companies even ones disguised as non-profits or not-for-profits, as long as we let companies run the healthcare system, this shit is going to stay this way. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that the last questions that I would have that I would like to know more about is like, how long is this contract? Does it go back to Mm. 2018 when they first got their union (laughs) five years ago, four or five years ago? Like, holy shit. Like, first contracts are a hell of a fight, folks, and I'm glad that they managed to get to their first contract, and uh, if anything, this is going to give them a stronger basis to jump from in Mm -hmm. their next uh, bargaining sessions, but but damn, uh, what a start. What a start to the battle. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Well, uh, speaking of workers who are starting their battle, let's talk about a group of workers you may not have thought of before. Anime voice actors, <laughs> folks. <laughs> uh, they can be pretty polarizing, but by God, they are out there working their asses off. Go to any of their IMDb pages. You will be either enthralled or possibly appalled at the number of listings. <laughs> it's incredible how much work they do. So we we see a high level of union density in other parts of the entertainment industry, comparatively. And so film and TV production is one of the highest union density industries with mainline talent represented by SAG-AFTRA and behind the camera crew represented mostly by IATSE, among other various unions that make the entertainment industry function. But as we say, anime voice actors have ironically been left without their collective voice. So a recent piece for In These Times has revealed the fight by workers who provide English voice acting for Japanese anime to win a union and protect their working conditions. And up until very recently, the job of dubbing over the original language audio of anime was rel- it was a cottage industry. It was pretty small and uh, largely made up of workers who engaged in it as a passion project or an opportunity to pick up extra cash on the side. You ever wonder why Cowboy Bebop 
bebop stands out among anime it's not just the animation and music they actually hired really good voice actors which was unheard of at the time for dubbing just a fun fact uh, and and also at the time you know uh, a lot of people would just get into the industry to pick up extra cash when normally they would be doing other kinds of entertainment work but today the industry has ballooned and become massive bringing bringing in millions of dollars and is largely dominated by a small set of enormous companies with Crunchyroll being the largest anime distributor in the US and Crunchyroll has shown no intention of accepting its workers right to unionize big surprise for Folks, the anime companies are kind of fascist. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not surprised. Well, I mean, I haven't uh, ever listened to this podcast, so I don't know why I'm uh, necessarily p- pushing it. But like, there's a I always hear. When I was people born talk today. About, <laughs> but, but when people talk about uh, the notions of of why this sort of thing happens, you're supposed to check out uh, what against Japanism. Which is basically, you know, an analysis on why Japan is fascist. Mm. So, you know, if yeah. people are really um, interested in anime and stuff like that, it might be worth your time. Short answer: I think it's America. I think we did post, that post nineteen forty five. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, absolutely. So, as an example of this, of the conditions workers face here. One voice actor, Kyle McCarley, who had previously done the voice for a the lead character in the show Mob Psycho 100. Um, <laughs> I love anime Notable games. hit that I've never I, heard of. It's yeah, popular. I, it's a big one. I've just oh, never okay. seen it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I also felt like the biggest boomer in the world writing Japanese anime into the notes, but it's yeah. English voice acting, so you got to contrast it. So, uh, but he, when he was offered the the contract to reprise his role he included in negotiations. He was like, look, yeah, I want to do this voice. And he didn't even demand a union contract. He simply demanded that the company Crunchyroll sit down with representatives from SAG-AFTRA just to talk mm-hmm. about unionizing. And Crunchyroll was just like, nope, fuck you. Take our non-union contract or leave it. And he's like, well, I'm not gonna, I don't want to perpetuate the problems in the industry that I am trying to fix. So no, I'm not going to take the non-union contract. And if you really want to hire me as most of the fans would want, you should maybe listen to the fact that the workers want to have a union. And Crunchyroll was just like, okay, fine. We'll bring in a scab and a lot of fans will probably be mad about it, but we don't care because we hate our workers and we don't want to pay them any money because we want to make as much by exploiting them as we possibly can. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, and they want to maintain the status quo, which is that they set it up so that these voice actors have to do an insane amount of work all the time just to pay the bills. I mean, this guy's a really popular voice actor who has a lot of really big roles. I just looked him up. Near Automata, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, Mob Psycho 100. But if you look at the little... Oh, he was in JoJo? Yeah. <laughs> if, you, if you look at the um, little... Uh, image that they put together of all of the characters there are dozens from b and c list animes those are jobs this guy shouldn't have to work give him a good union contract (laughs) (laughs) well and another aspect of it though also is because there's no union there's really no worker protections Mm -hmm. for voice actors and while you know some people might think well what what voice protect what what protections could you need but the thing is if you're being asked to just like do anime battle screams 
for hours and hours at mm-hmm. a time, that's going to take a pretty serious toll. And, you know, some workers have been pushed so hard by this, they've actually done permanent damage to their vocal cords. Like one, yeah. one actor, Ben Diskin, explained in this article, quote, as you get older you st- and you start realizing how much damage you've done to yourself in your early career by engaging in all of these vocally abusive practices, when you start paying for it, you start getting a little more backbone. But it's very difficult to push back when you've spent your entire life bowing down and saying, yes, sir, please, sir, may I have another? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so like one of the things that the workers organizing in the anime dubbing industry have looked to is the example of SAG-AFTRA's tw- strike in 2016 against the video game industry. And in that strike, workers won payment up front instead of being only paid by residuals. They won the right to more prep time for roles. And they demonstrated that voice acting was not just a, you know, silent afterthought for SAG-AFTRA mm-hmm. that they were just like happy to take the dues from, but that it was something they would actually fight for, which was, you know, a, a big deal when that happened in 2016. And so that led workers to form the advocacy group CODA, the Coalition of Dubbing Actors, to fight for the specific needs on their job and to advocate for workers to form a union. And since they formed that advocacy group, the number of union voice acting jobs in the dubbing industry has increased by a factor of 10. Uh, Then they were even able to pressure SAG-AFTRA to create a special committee within the union of dubbing actors, and then workers after that reached a contract with Netflix in 2019 that included huge gains for Netflix's anime dubbing workers in vocal protections and major pay increases. So there has been some real gains here. And also in around 2019, you might have noticed the quality of the voice acting got better because the workers were treated better. Mm -hmm. That's right around when Castlevania came out, I think, too. So I th- Somewhere in there, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just saying. Um, and now, Coda is basically trying to pressure the, the big companies to use the Netflix contract as basically a standard. As mm-hmm. like, look, this is what voice actors need, this is what we fought for, you know, we can fight for a specific contract at your, your business, but we're going to be basing it on this. But, unfortunately, even as big as Netflix is... Crunchy role in the anime industry, they are the king of, of, of everything because, you know, they merged with Funimation in mm-hmm. 2021, and that basically brought the industry into a near-total monopoly. Like, even <laughs> though Netflix, you know, has some, but Crunchyroll is the biggest game in town. That would be like if Burger King merged with McDonald's. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And Wendy's was hanging out like, we still exist. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, and, and, and the company has made enormous profits off the back of insulting wages. Like, And it is clearly they are doing the same thing we hear in so many creative industries of, hey, you know what? Yeah, it's not very much pay, but it's the opportunity to work in an industry you really love. And if you don't take it, there's thousands of other people who want this gig just as much, and they'll take this salary. And when I say this salary, one example that was mentioned in the article was a one anime film that brought in $30 million. This is just the English version in the U.S. And the actors who were paid to dub some of the lead roles were paid $150. (laughs) What the fuck? Like, I yeah. hope that their landlords will accept opportunities <laughs> to work in an exciting field yeah. as legal tender. Jesus Christ. 
Yeah, yeah, super insulting, and that the argument for creatives to just sacrifice their their lives in order to maybe become part of the prestige network of artistic people who are allowed to be in this industry is so insulting. Get and, on the Angie's really, list for voice actors. Yeah, I... <laughs> I, I'm just so tired of this this extreme exploitation, and it also really plays into that like almost idea that you know uh, the working class are temporarily embarrassed millionaires in that certain sense, and that like oh no, you just have to grind at it, and then suddenly you'll be you know the next I don't know any anime voice actors, but a popular one or whatever. You Stephen know? Bloom. Yeah. Yeah. Stephen Bloom, that guy. <laughs> yeah, Spike from Cowboy Bebop. Oh, I actually, um, I did watch that. Yeah. He's in a lot of, <laughs> but, he was also the Toonami guy, just saying. But yes, so now that Crunchyroll has this in, incredible monopoly position, it's it's making the union effort a really uphill battle. And partially because Crunchyroll has moved a lot of their operations to Texas because of the fact that Texas is a right-to-work state and their fascist government is more than happy to help them mm-hmm. fight off union efforts. So, but all that being said, the gains that, dubbing actors have made over just the last like not even 10 years just like four or five years have been really big but it's gonna take a lot of help i think from the big unions like sag aftra to really give these workers the backing they're gonna need to take on a behemoth like Crunchyroll. and so i hope that we're able to see the sort of labor solidarity that these workers really need Absolutely. Well, I mean, it's it's really tough in these industries that I think don't get a ton of attention, but it's been really reassuring to see the huge gains that have been made by people like video game testers and people who work in other industries mm-hmm. that w- that have these same kinds of things lorded over them at their jobs. So, yeah, nothing, nothing but yeah, support for it, these It really folks. just reminds me of the uh, people who are complaining and like, or who are uh, on striking universities and stuff like that, who are saying like they have to go to their parents for money. I mean, mm-hmm. that it is uh, just another form of gatekeeping artists that makes it so that only established people or, uh, or people with established families in some sort of economic uh, position could even possibly get into these industries in the first place. Um, but yeah, to move to our next story, we're going to be jumping over to the UK, where uh, yet another group of workers have joined the massive working-class strike wave. This time, it's junior doctors. On Monday, nearly 50,000 junior doctors in British Medi- in the British Medical Association voted by a staggering 98% margin to strike. Ooh. These workers will start with a 72-hour walkout on March 13th and the 16th, but have said that uh, that if the Tories continue to refuse to negotiate, that this three-day walkout will just be the beginning. Uh, I got to get a Google calendar going for UK strike events, <laughs> just like uh, junior doctors, March 13th to question mark. <laughs> I, I actually think the Enough is Enough campaign has a strike calendar <laughs> specifically for all these groups. Yeah, because there's so many. And like the kind of way that strikes work in the UK is very often is like targeted strategic strikes. Mm-hmm. So um, that these junior doctors uh, have seen their wages fall a staggering 26% over the past decade uh, of Tory rules. Starting pay is less than £30,000 per year, uh, the equivalent of $17.50 an hour in the U.S. due to the cuts to the NHS. 
junior doctors now face double the workload they were previously expected to handle, often 60 patients or more per day, while working 55-plus hour weeks, but for only 40 hours worth of pay. Uh, That is immensely dangerous. I can't imagine thinking that your health is in good hands when these workers are, these doctors are so immensely overworked. Yeah. Well, and, and I was just, I was blown away to learn how low the salary is for these workers because, you know, they're, they're talked about as junior doctors. And I, and I, I feel like folks might get the impression that it's like, oh, this is like, that they're like interns. And it's like, no, it's like, these are folks that, I, I believe this is relatively equivalent to like doing your residency. Like they're in the process of, of doing their final exams, but mm-hmm. like they are acting as doctors. Like, so like they're doing all of this vital work caring for people for a salary that's too low to pay anybody. <laughs> like, like 30,000 pounds Again, that's the equivalent of I, I think it's about thirty five thousand dollars U.S. Like that's not enough money for like just about anything, and you're paying that to doctors, and you're wondering why you're getting worse health outcomes out of the NHS because that's and that's one of the things that I think is really important to point out to, to go off on a bit of a tangent, but like I think this is important about this story because one of the things that the Tories and this is all tied up in why this happened because this is not just neglect. This is intentional. Like it is, it is very similar to something we, you know, we see with austerity policies here in the U.S. It's the standard playbook where you purposefully withhold funding from an agency that you want to privatize, so that as a result, the quality of service of that agency goes down. People get mad. People complain. You point to it and say, "See, look." This system just government can't operate it. It's inefficient. We need to give this to the private market so that we can get maximum efficiency and we can cut through all the bureaucratic red tape. And that's why you've seen doctor salaries drop 26% during Tory rule because they want to be able to turn healthcare in the UK into what we have here in the US masquerading as healthcare mm-hmm. so that they can get the massive massive bribes from private healthcare companies that all of our politicians take to keep our system private. They want to bring the people of Britain to the wonderful world of America where every city has an Aspen Dental and a Spectrum Health and nobody (laughs) has good teeth or working limbs. (laughs) Well, and like in the U.S., these medical students, or I mean, these are doctors, but medical students in general in the U.K. rack up enormous debt One worker told the Tribune magazine that he's accrued over 90,000 pounds worth of debt due to medical school and is expected to pay that back with interest on a salary of 29,000 pounds a year. It's ridiculous. It takes a typical junior doctor between five and 12 years to reach a qualified full-time resident status. And in the interim, they are massively overworked for a pitifully low wage at which many doctors are forced to end up skipping meals. These are people who are looking out for other people's health who can't even look out for their own health. Yeah, like in the story, one of the one of the guys that they interviewed talked about like, yeah, some days I go in and the only thing I eat is the free coffee in the mess room. And I'm like, I like I don't really know like a better term than failed state to apply 
to Britain because, like, if that because this is a funny thing, uh, you always a, hear it's fucking a managed decline. Dan, let's get our terms straight. Uh, well, because one of the things you always hear reactionaries and and batshit anti-communists roll out there is they're like, well, in Cuba, yeah, they, they have all those doctors, but the you know you can make more money as a cab driver, which first off isn't true, and second off doesn't understand the social wage in socialist countries. <laughs> but like, I think like just objectively. Even when you compare just the salary, workers in Cuba, doctors in Cuba make more money than the doctors in the UK. And that's while getting free health care and, you know, all of the other free education, all the other benefits of Cuba's socialist system and a better and a better, you know, medical research field mm-hmm. than, than the UK by miles. I mean, well, Cuba's I'll, been I'll, developing some of the greatest tre- like treatments for things that other countries have just totally neglected because they're not profitable. So, well, they're blockaded, unlike the yeah. UK. <laughs> yeah. Well, not not for long. If uh, Amlo has anything to say about it, he's been <laughs> popping true. off recently. Also, anti-communists will just say anything about Cuba. They'll be like, yeah. they conscript everyone to be a doctor, and if you need treatment, you have to go to yourself. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it it's wild. But yeah, and and so it's now gotten to the point where eighty percent of British doctors have said that they often think about leaving the profession. Like 80%? 80%. That's like like the number of people who I've met in the restaurant industry who say just one more year and I'm never coming back to a place like this again. Yeah. Which is every single one of them. You've been watching that new season of Party Down? I feel (laughs) like we're hitting all the same notes that first episode did anyway. (laughs) But yeah, because this is like the thing. It's like you 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 show up to a hospital in the UK, and mm-hmm. and hey, you aren't going to get you know turned away because you don't have insurance, which that's a big advantage over the US. But because of Tory austerity, you may be walking into somebody to help you out who hasn't eaten in twelve hours, mm-hmm. and maybe they're a little loopy because of that. So like that's the scenario that the Tories are creating in order to justify the massive windfall that they see coming for them if they're able to privatize the system and destroy it like we have in the U.S. And so like there's a, a quote from Mike, who's a junior doctor, he, who told Tribune magazine, which is where most of this uh, info is from, quote, we've been shouting and screaming about underinvestment for years and we've been ignored. Every pound we spend on healthcare in this country means we have a healthier population who are working more. And if you have more workers paying more tax, you grow your economy. It's all well and good, the government saying we're going to double medical school places. But if a third of them go abroad because they get paid more overseas, we're not solving the issue, end quote. And so, like, that's kind of a liberal Keynesian way to look at it, but that's fine. It's still a better analysis than anybody justifying the Tories' austerity bullshit. And so now these doctors have had enough. And so they're going to be joining the other hundreds of, I think at this point, millions of of UK workers who have struck over the past six months. And one of the things, the other big things is that the, the way that they timed this is that March 15th, which is the last full day of their strike, is set to be another day of mass coordinated action with rail drivers, government workers, and teachers walking out on that day as well. So really looking forward to another very strong day of working class action as part of this UK strike wave. But at this point, rail workers, teachers, government employees, postal workers, firefighters, ambulance drivers, port workers, 
and again, I don't know if I said them at the start, but doctors, like who else? This is your society. This is like everybody in your Richard Scary book of who yeah. you need to run your town is mad at the government because the government says their job doesn't matter. Who even is left in the UK? The chimney sweeps. Um, <laughs> the dogs. <Yeah>. Get the <laughs> dogs in there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like it. The class war in the UK right now is just absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, so solidarity with everybody over there fighting their absolutely catastrophist, cat- catastrophist system. Is that a word? Is catastrophist? It's catastrophic. I, you, know, you know what? I'm sticking with it. Uh, it's a word it. now. Yeah, so uh, moving back over to the United States, we wanted to quick talk a little bit about the Inland Empire Union over in California, where the Inland Empire Amazon Workers United Union has been getting actually some wins. We've been trying to cover stuff at Amazon as much as we can, but uh, these workers have actually made some um, strides towards having real power and building power within their union. So just this past January, to kind of exemplify what sort of power the union is building, there was an organizer within the union, uh, Sarah Fee, who had been fired short, like literally shortly after, which the article doesn't say exactly how long after, but it sounds almost like that day or maybe the next morning, that she was fired after confronting her general manager talking about safety issues as well as some other concerns, and she was just fired. And so immediately the union filed the ULP, as they normally do, and uh, Amazon said that, Miss quote, Miss Fee was alleged to have acted in a very unprofessional and inappropriate manner, <laughs> and we're investigating the incident like we would for any employee, which they're basically saying because they know that she's an organizer, which is saying, uh, no, we're treating her like we treat anyone else. But the union decided that that was an unacceptable answer, and they knew that she was fired for doing organizing. And so they started handing out flyers and stickers that said, where's Sarah? They started posting on the internal uh, employee messaging board, like the basically like a forum for the, for the employees that said, where's Sarah? Uh, really trying to spread the message as far as possible that this firing was illegal and by the 5th of january amazon said that they had concluded their investigation and gave sarah her job back which is in my opinion pretty surprising with how unaccountable amazon is to many of the egregious things that they do to their employees i mean uh maybe i'm too optimistic but it just seems like the pressure from the workers worked on that one. And Amazon was like, hey, it really does seem like if we don't back down on this, it's going to be a bigger problem for us uh, than well, if we do. <laughs> and they've been escalating. They've been doing walkouts. We've covered some of the walkouts they've been doing. They have been demanding a wage going from $17 an hour to $22 an hour. And they've also been exposing the really unsafe like heat conditions that the uh, employees here face on top of the fact that I learned this while going over this article that the air quality in the Inland Empire area is the lowest quality air in the whole country which has led to a lot more asthma uh, people people with asthma in the area and these people are getting hired here at Amazon and they're dealing with 
uh, temperatures inside that can be over 100 degrees during like the major heat wave last year, but in general are at least over 90. And then employees have also brought their own thermometers out to the tarmac because, again, this is an air hub where there's actual planes and stuff going on and have recorded temperatures of 121 degrees. 121 degrees. That's ridiculous. I mean, if you because that's one of those things that I think people sometimes miss with because you'll see like, oh, it's a hot one today. It's like 85 degrees. And it's like, yeah, that's the air temperature. But like on a like on a runway where mm-hmm. it's blacktop in every direction and there's no shade anywhere, yeah, it, it can be significantly hotter and get dangerous really quickly. Yeah. Well, in exemplifying these con- conditions, I mean, Sarah herself said that, quote, Amazon doesn't have a culture of safety. It's all about production, which, mm-hmm. I mean, as we know from constantly reporting that Amazon warehouses have a an injury rate twice that of similar jobs, which really shows how much Amazon actually cares about safety, which is not at all. They really only care about the bottom dollar. And uh, this is also, there's also been the problem of union busters going around and harassing any of the people associated with the union. There are currently at least five union busters working at the KSBD air hub that these, that this union exists in. And the union has also fought and won for, uh, fought and won more fans in the warehouse, which is a start. Uh, more heat breaks, which is uh, very important, considering that people would be reprimanded even when working out on the hot tarmac like that or inside the warehouse facilities. They've also gotten a differential for night shift workers as well as this rehiring of Seraphie. Their next goal, again, like I kind of mentioned earlier, is to actually get that wage raised up, that $5 that they have been demanding from $17 an hour to 22 And so, yeah, yeah. solidarity Th- with these workers. I think this is a really good strategy because, you know, like we've seen, for instance, with like Amazonians United in mm-hmm. Chicago, where, you know, starting from a position where you know Amazon is, you know, really trying to crush any union efforts and you've got a relatively small base to start with, by pushing for these specific wins rather than centering everything just around the election campaign for representation, it I think it this really helps m- get workers to see that, like, A, the union is the workers, which, of course, this is because it's not some staffer coming in from outside. It's just your coworkers being like, hey, you know what fucking sucks? The fact that we don't have any heat breaks and this place is ridiculously hot at all times it's so like it's so easy to just be like if, if, if a union buster's like oh you shouldn't listen to them they're a third party it's like no no one's no, gonna believe they're not <laughs> this, they're they're like the the exemplification of a shop floor union they mm-hmm. have they discuss things amongst just the workers they are organizing specifically on the shop floor and they're making their demands there they're doing walkouts there it is associated entirely independently with just these workers. So, yeah, absolutely. I think it's really encouraging to see that despite the huge amount of money that Amazon is spending on union busting and the fact that they are clearly, especially terrified of organizing at their air hubs because there's only a few of them and they handle such a high percentage of their, their freight, that these workers have managed to make these wins and have managed to continue to build their organizing even through this harassment of other organizers, I think it's a really good sign. And it, it, you know, it'll probably be a long battle 
but I, I think it shows like really good understanding of tactics and like that they are really serious about this and it, mm-hmm. and they're they're in it for the long haul. Yeah. Well, and speaking of in it for the long haul, our last little story that we want to hit before we go to the meme review is a story that on February 21st, the UAW finally met the demand of the UAWD and Workers United Caucus when they finally had five of the 13 members of United uh, Unite All Workers for Democracy on the actual executive board, they convinced them to unanimously vote to bring the strike pay back up to $500 from the $400 amount, which, if you remember our reporting on this before, during the UAW convention, they had voted to bring it up to $500, but then the uh, the administration had convinced the workers towards the end when many had left, or not the the workers, the people at the convention, uh, I bet they're workers, but they're still like, you know members of the union who are making a lot of decisions, to then lower it from 500 back down to 400 citing that it would cost too much, which yeah. they're preparing for the strike and the, the negotiations with the big three coming up, and like... There was very little to understand. I mean, we were very critical of this move by the previous administration. Uh, but I don't know. It's good that now that there's actually some rank and file members on the executive board that we're seeing these things brought back, these rollbacks that happened, you know, brought where they should be. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's not because we are so close to the end of the voting for the election, but it's hard for me not to think that like this, that the reason that they caved on this is just cynically that Curry is willing to kind of do anything to try and, mm-hmm. and, and win the, the election against Sean Fain, especially because I think the thing that's so frustrating about this, and I know part of it is that, you know, now we've had the election for the lower level uh, executive members. And now of course, there's a new board, which is almost half, uh, you know, UAW members, United members, which is fantastic. Um, it'll be a majority when but, the last two win. Uh, yeah, I, I hope so. Um, <laughs> but I think one of the things that's extra frustrating about this, and I saw Aaron Kennelly mention this on, on Twitter, it was a good point, which is that, like, look, we're glad that there's a strike pay increase. It's good. But this should have happened at the convention, and the fact that they pulled it back is complete bullshit. And that had material consequences because the Case New Holland workers could have used that extra $100 a week. But they didn't get it because Ray Curry said no. (laughs) Said, no, we don't need to have $500 a week strike pay. That makes it too easy to go on strike. We need to have $400 strike pay so it's easier for me to control, you know, people and, and keep them from going on strike. And that sucks because, like, the the main purpose of having these funds is to use them. It is not to let them sit there and become an asset for the union. It is to use the resources of the working class to buttress the power of the working class. And if the strike fund is just fucking sitting there, you're not doing anything with it, or it's so low that it's not helping your workers Mm -hmm. stay out on the line longer and give them more leverage, then your strike fund is functionally useless. Well, and also it's like maybe if you spend the strike fund, you're 
your members can stay out on the lines and get better wages, which will replenish the strike fund more. It's like you're missing, you're missing both like the point of what you're supposed to be doing with the funds, but also like the logic of how of the cycle of the funds. They're not something to sit around and be invested with. I guess everybody wants to be the Ontario teachers pension fund with their strike fund, but like, that's not what that is for, you know? Yeah. Well, and kind of exemplifying this, we talked about how the UAWD was preparing for a lot of these strikes back during the convention. Well, Ray Curry was quoted in this in this raising of the strike pay where he basically quoted the UAWD when he said, quote, this increase will immediately help members who are on strike. Increasing the strike pay gives notice to employers that we have a we have high expectations as we head into bargaining and that the UAW is united in fighting for economic justice for all members. It's like well, maybe more so now that there's a threat to your, you know, presidency. <laughs> yeah. So, anyways, regardless of the acrimony about the, the, the way that this happened uh, and that it should have happened months ago, this is a good thing. And it'll be an even better thing if it comes along with, hopefully, us hearing in a few weeks that Ray Curry is no longer the president of the UAW <laughs> and that Sean Fain is. And we have a more militant setup going into these negotiations with mm-hmm. the big three. Absolutely. But speaking about being ready for moving into a new phase, <laughs> let's move into the <laughs> meme review. That's right. That's right. So, so, so go ahead. <laughs> Let's all jump in at the exact same moment. <laughs> well, I'll start I mean, with this one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got to decide. <laughs> so we got a two-panel here. It's a Donald Duck cartoon. So the first one, Donald's sitting in bed. He's, he's just sat up. His eyes are squinty and, and, and baggy, and he clearly doesn't want to be awake. And it's just captioned, I called my boss and asked if I could come in a little late. And then the second panel, he said, dream on. I think that was real nice of him. <laughs> and then it cuts to Donald having gone back to sleep. <laughs> Hell yeah. Uh, the next one is another two panel. This one's side by side instead of one over one. And uh, it's kind of a comparison of what the online rhetoric between capitalists and communists are. It's like, so the first one is how capitalists see communists. And it's really like almost like a share zone skeleton or whatever where it says fucking awesome skeleton of death and then it's how communists see capitalists and it's the classic capitalist peg is some random greedy pig which also reminds me of the meme that john likes to share from uh mad men very often i don't think of you at all yeah Yeah, it's so funny. They're so scared of us and they think we're like so powerful and cool and we're just like, yeah, you just kind of seem like you're you're ugly and a problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll be real with yeah, you. Yeah, I, I know there's all the like Facebook groups where it's like, you know, conservatives accidentally making communism seem awesome. But those old school anti-communist posters really are just the best. Like yeah, with, a, with all the giant, like it's like, There'll be some like skeleton that's a hundred feet tall with a, ba- a sash that says Bolshevism on mm-hmm. it, like lording over a city. And I'm like, 
damn, that's rad as hell. Well, that, it reminds me of that Economist cover with the ta- China is crushing the tech companies. And oh, it's this, yeah. Like, oh, yeah. And it's this guy about to like smash the Twitter logo and all the different logos. And I'm like, this looks badass. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of badass, uh, our next meme is not really a meme so much. It's just a photo of a Chipotle now hiring kind of trifold that's been placed on a, on a table. And it's got all the all of the pitches on the front. Excellent pay and cash bonuses, medical, dental, and I can't read the rest of it. And then some uh, diligent employee has just written in Sharpie on the interior, don't work here. <laughs> <laughs> just do us They're all They're really a favor. looking out. Yeah. Like... Doing doing some real solidarity work, uh, saving people from working for the criminal enterprise that is Chipotle. <laughs> Don't make the worst decision of your life, okay? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this next one, uh, you know, I think is a is a pretty good illustration of, of recent events. This is the D and D game master meme format. So you've got kind of the the four part to this. You've got the GM. All right. Rail workers are threatening to strike over lack of sick leave and unsafe working conditions. And then Biden responds to the GM, I will keep the economy rolling by making it illegal for rail workers to strike. Biden then rolls a natural one. (laughs) And then it just cuts to the GM being like, ah, and then it's the mushroom cloud from the East Palestine disaster. Mm. Yeah. That, uh, I actually went on a little show called Subversive History with uh, someone who Dan and I know from Red Game Table, Johnny, and uh, did a four-hour thing trying to go over the entire history of the rails all the way up in what caused the disaster. I think I only made two mistakes, and I correct one of them in the middle. Uh, so hell yeah <laughs> for four Hope hours of my messy notes i felt like i did a pretty decent job i'm sure it was great uh but our last meme is a tweet from at icon uh, ironic professor where it said uh the the caption on, or the what do you call it? The the text on the tweet is good summary of britain's conditions right now and it's a uh a screenshot of a Birmingham Live news article where it says Rampaging Badger chases customer around petrol station as she clings to curry. <laughs> and there's a this little photo of a badger just just zooming around. I don't know. Uh I'm sorry for the people in Britain cuz like sure badgers are neat but it would not be fun to be chased around. To To be you know, fair though I think a badger is probably the biggest, scariest thing in Britain besides another person. Like they don't have, <laughs> they don't have wolves or bears, right? Like, if they did, they've probably been hunted to extinction yeah. long, long ago. They have That's foxes, what I figured. But foxes aren't even as dangerous as badgers, I don't think. No. Yeah. So imagine Not- like a fox is the largest mammal you've seen in most of your life, and then uh, there's a badger running around a store. I'd probably lose it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and I mean, it's the UK. I mean, you have no no work protections. Nobody makes any money. The cost of living crisis has gone through the roof. And now you've got badgers chasing <laughs> you around the store trying to steal your curry. <laughs> and that's why we need a workers' revolution. That's, that's right. right. <laughs> so people can eat their curry in peace. <laughs> that's right. Because with a workers' government, you will be able to employ the right number of people 
to make sure that the Badgers have a safe environment to live in and aren't running into stores to chase people around for their curry. Under socialism, the Badger will make the curry. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, sure, why not? (laughs) Well, yeah, why not? With that, we're going to wrap for this episode. want to thank you all for listening. If you'd like to support us, you can do so on patreon.com slash workstoppage. As an entirely listener-supported show, it is how we get this done. There's also tons of content on there. We had just finished up our Unions and the Mob Reputation versus Reality series, which is highly acclaimed. I, we've been getting 10 <laughs> out of 10 stars and other shapes all over the mm-hmm. place. <laughs> Jump in the Discord to talk to us about this episode or anything else and give us a review somewhere, anywhere. Follow John yeah. on Twitter at Facebook Villain. Follow the pod at Work Stoppage Pod. Listen to Beep Beep Lettuce. Listen to Red Game Table. Check out Subversive History because I was on it. And then, as always, labor peace is not in our interest and solidarity forever. Solidarity. Solidarity. Solidarity.